0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! If you believe our independent reporting is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $20 a month today by visiting democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. New York this is democracy now
1: Tonight for the first time in our history we will strike all 3 of the big 3 at once We are using a new strategy the stand up strike We will call on select facilities locals or units to stand up and go on strike
0: The United Auto Workers have begun a historic targeted strike at GM, Ford, and Stellantis. We'll get the latest. Then to the climate emergency as thousands prepare for a major march here in New York Sunday to end fossil fuels. We'll speak to a climate scientist taking part just arrested in West Virginia for chaining herself to a drill in order to shut down construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline.
2: We haven't even breached 1.5 degrees Celsius, and we're seeing such extreme impacts from climate change this summer. The flooding in Vermont, the fires in Maui, the fires in Canada, the flooding in Libya. I mean, I could keep going, (laughs) and I don't want to. Um, We really need to halt climate change where it is.
0: And we'll look at a major victory for student climate activists.
3: After 10 years of student activism, NYU just committed to divesting from the fossil fuel industry.
0: Then we go to Washington, where Hunter Biden's been indicted on gun charges, while Republican lawmakers have launched an inquiry into impeaching President Biden. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Auto Workers has launched a historic strike against the big three U.S. automakers— at midnight, about 12,700 workers committed to a work stoppage at three locations, a GM factory in Missouri, a Stellantis complex in Ohio, and a Ford assembly plant near Detroit, Michigan. The union says up to 146,000 workers could ultimately join the strike unless auto executives end a two-tier system for wages and benefits and agree to improve pensions and working hours. Joining the picket lines was Michigan Congress member Rashida Tlaib, whose father was a long time assembly line worker at Ford and a UAW member.
4: Now we got tears, we don't got cost of living adjustment, which has been part of every UAW contract since 1948 until 2009 when they said, look, we'll sacrifice, we'll take a hit so we can keep you all afloat. Not that they need help to stay afloat. The big three is, you know, literally turning their backs on them. They're making record profits. It's about time to reward the very people for the reason they were even able to, again, survive, again, the Great Recession. We'll have
0: more on the UAW strike after headlines. In Libya, the death toll from catastrophic flooding in the coastal city of Derna soared to more than 11,000. More than 10,000 others remain missing. Al Jazeera reports the two dams that burst early Monday amidst unprecedented heavy rains were more than a half-century old and had not undergone maintenance since 2002. On Thursday, the UN's World Meteorological Organization said most of the deaths could have been avoided if Libya had a normally operating meteorological service able to launch evacuations. In Phoenix, Arizona, the Maricopa County Department of Public Health reports at least 202 people died due to this year's unprecedented summer heat wave. Another 356 suspected heat-related deaths are under investigation. Nearly half the confirmed deaths were among people without permanent homes. More than 50 occurred indoors, usually when people lack air conditioning. Jeff Johnston is Maricopa County's chief medical examiner.
5: It's hard to ignore 31 days of above 110 degrees in a row um, and really shattering all of the previous records. But at the same time, it's really, really important to. Uh, not lose focus on the increased number of vulnerable people in our society to these kinds of things.
0: In more climate news, internal documents from Exxon reveal executives, including former CEO Rex Tillerson, secretly worked to sow doubt about the severity of climate change, even as the oil giant publicly acknowledged the link between fossil fuels and the climate crisis. Tillerson would go on to become secretary of state under former President Trump. The Wall Street Journal reports between 2006 and 2008. 2016 Exxon executives and their internal communications worked to counter the notion that humans should curtail oil and gas use to help the planet. In a statement— the Center for Climate Integrity, demanded Exxon be held accountable, adding, quote, this damning new evidence of Exxon's climate lies shows for decades it's been official company policy for executives to undermine climate science, minimize the dangers of their oil and gas business, and protect company profits at all costs, with no concern for the catastrophic impact their actions would have on humanity, they said. Here in New York, Hundreds of climate activists blocked the entrances to Citibank's headquarters in Manhattan Thursday. At least 25 protesters were arrested. Democracy Now! spoke to organizer Alec Kahnan after he was released from police custody.
5: Just this week, um, there are thousands, potentially tens of thousands of people that have died in Libya from extreme flooding that is being driven by the climate crisis. And the climate crisis we know is being driven by the fossil fuel industry. And the fossil fuel industry cannot survive without the financial backing of banks like Citibank.
0: Thursday's action was part of a series of planned climate protests, including what's coming up Sunday, March to End Fossil Fuels here in New York City. That march is part of the larger global fight to end fossil fuels, which will see actions take place around the world. We'll have more on the planned events later in the broadcast. Federal prosecutors have indicted President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, on felony charges of illegally possessing a handgun and making false statements in order to obtain a revolver in 2018. The charges carry a maximum sentence of 25 years in prison and fines of up to $750,000. Special Counsel David Weiss brought the charges after a Trump-appointed federal judge in July rejected a deal that would have seen Hunter Biden plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax counts in order to escape more serious charges. It's the first time in U.S. history the Justice Department's criminally charged the child of a sitting president. We'll have more on Hunter Biden later in the broadcast. In Italy, the small island of Lampedusa is asking the Italian government for help after 7,000 asylum seekers arrived by boat over a two-day period this week and are living in precarious conditions. The island's population is typically just over 6,000 people. Arrivals in Spain's Canary Islands also tripled in the first half of the month. Racist rhetoric against black Africans by Tunisian President Kais Saied has helped drive the increase in asylum seekers, hoping for a safer home in Europe. In related news, 40 survivors of a refugee shipwreck have filed a lawsuit accusing the Greek Coast Guard of deliberately neglecting to save passengers and likely causing their fishing boat to capsize when sailors attempted to tow the vessel. Hundreds of people perished in the June 14th tragedy. This is one survivor's account.
6: They put out a rope and pulled us. It had weight with a big number of people. They quickly pulled us and the boat capsized. It moved to the right, to the left, to the right, and it capsized. People started to fall on each other. It totally capsized. Because the people were on top of each other, people were screaming. People were drowning each other. It was nighttime and there were waves. It was scary.
0: In Wisconsin, the Republican-controlled state Senate voted Thursday to oust Megan Wolf, the state's top election official. Wisconsin's Democratic Attorney General Josh Call immediately filed a lawsuit seeking to block her ouster. The elections administrator position is a nonpartisan office, but after Donald Trump narrowly lost in Wisconsin to Joe Biden in 2020, Republicans and far-right interests began harassing Megan Wolf and spreading misinformation about election fraud. In more news from Wisconsin, Planned Parenthood will start performing abortions again next week in a major win for reproductive rights there. Following last year's overturning of Roe v. Wade at the U.S. Supreme Court, Wisconsin Republicans used an 1849 state law to justify an abortion ban, putting providers and patients in limbo. This is Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin President Tanya Atkinson.
4: The uncertainty about the enforceability of Wisconsin's 1849 abortion law has been devastating for Wisconsin women and people across the gender spectrum who need abortion care. A ruling by the Dane County Circuit Court in July made it clear that the 1849 law is not enforceable for voluntary
0: abortions. And on Capitol Hill, Democrats have introduced legislation to provide 16 billion dollars in emergency child care funds annually for the next five years. This comes just two weeks before billions of dollars in pandemic era funding for daycares is set to expire, potentially forcing tens of thousands of child care programs to shut down, impacting over three million children. Senator Patty Murray co-authored the bill.
1: We have a child care crisis in America and that crisis could soon go from bad to worse as essential relief for the sector expires at the end of this month. So we are here today to sound the alarm and put forward a common sense solution before child care providers might have to close their doors, before kids lose their child care slots, and before parents face higher costs or simply be forced to leave their jobs to take care of their kids. And those are some of the headlines.
0: This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the Warren Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The UAW. The United Auto Workers has launched an historic targeted strike against the big three U.S. automakers, Ford, General Motors and Stellantis, which is the parent company of Chrysler. On Thursday, UAW President Sean Fein announced strikes at three facilities, a GM plant in Wentzville, Missouri, a Stellantis complex in Toledo, Ohio, and a Ford assembly plant in Wayne, Michigan. About 12,700 workers are taking part in this initial strike, but Fain said the strike could be expanded.
1: Tonight, for the first time in our history, we will strike all three of the big three at once. We are using a new strategy, the stand-up strike. We will call on select facilities, locals or units, to stand up and go on strike. This strategy will keep the companies guessing. It will give our national negotiators maximum leverage, and flexibility in bargaining. And if we need to go all out, we will. The strike
0: comes during a highly profitable period for the big three automakers. According to the UAW, the three auto companies made a combined $21 billion in profits in the first six months of the year. The unions demanding higher wages, a return to traditional pension plans, and a shorter work week. This is Jesse Ramirez, president of UAW Local 230.
6: It's a long time coming. Um, our members are owed um, what they gave up during the bankruptcies. We gave up, uh, we gave up pay, we gave up COLA, we gave up pensions. Um, we've, it, 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 tears were introduced into our, into our uh, location here. So our, it's about time. That
5: all the sacrifice that our members gave to this company to bring it out of bankruptcies and now one of the most profitable car companies, it's time that our members get what's owed to them.
0: On Wednesday, UAW President Sean Fein addressed auto workers about the need to strike.
1: I'm at peace with the decision to strike if we have to because I know that we're on the right side in this battle. It's a battle of the working class against the rich the haves versus the have-nots, the billionaire class against everybody else. And again, in talking about that, this, this class warfare, people accuse us and say this is class warfare. There's been class warfare going on in this country for the last 40 years. The billionaire class has been taking everything and leaving everybody else to fight for the scraps. And when I talk about that, there's one more piece of scripture I, I like that reminds me of in Matthew nineteen twenty three twenty four, 24, which states, It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? I have to believe that answer, at least in part, is because in the kingdom of God, no one hoards all the wealth while everybody else suffers and starves. In the kingdom of God, no one puts themselves in a position of total domination over the entire community. In the kingdom of God, no one forces others to perform endless, back-breaking work just to feed their families or put a roof over their heads. That world's not the kingdom of God. That world is hell. Living paycheck to paycheck, scraping to get by, that's hell. Choosing between medicine and rent is hell. Working seven days a week for 12 hours a day for months on end is hell. Having your plant closed down and your family scattered across the country is hell. Being made to work during a pandemic and not knowing if you might get sick and die or spread the disease to your family is hell. And enough is enough. It's time to decide what kind of world we want to live in. And it's time to decide what we're willing to do to get it.
0: That was UAW President Sean Fain, who took office in March. We're joined now by two guests, Alex Press, is staff writer for Jacobin magazine, where she covers labor. Her new piece headlined the UAW strike matters for the entire U.S. working class. Press was a union organizer before becoming a reporter. And Marcelina Pedraza is with us. She works as an electrician at a Ford assembly plant in Chicago, a member of UAW Local 551, and a fourth-generation union worker. Marcelina, let's begin with you in Chicago. Your response to what happened last night at midnight— Thousands of auto workers going out on strike in a targeted strike against three of the automakers—the three major, the three, the big three automakers—talk about the significance of this.
4: Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I love the show. Um, yeah, this is an historic moment, as you said—the first time in history that uh, all big three um, auto workers will be striking. And it's it's inspiring to see you know the solidarity uh, between all of the the auto workers, not just auto workers, but workers from from all around. You know, um, this is uh, going to make um, it's going to be beneficial to us. You know, we're going to keep fighting, and and I hope this this strategy will work. I'm going to trust the process. I know a lot of members um, might be disappointed that that we weren't called, but you know, we, that still could be a possibility. Um, and we're ready if and when we'll be called to walk out next.
0: So talk about this strategy of the targeted strike. We've never seen this before in U.S. history. And also, do you think a change in the leadership of the UAW, uh, Sean Fein became president in March, uh, has made the difference here?
4: Yes, for sure. I mean, since the uh, our newly elected um President Sean Fein said, "You know, this is going to keep them, the companies, keep them guessing. You know, and you know, since he was elected uh, on the campaign, the one-member, one-vote campaign from uh, UAWD, Night All Workers for Democracy, um, I think it's it's made a huge difference. You know, we're members are seeing um, more transparency. You know, we're getting constant updates, which we, you know, haven't seen in the past couple contracts that I've been involved with." So the members are are fired up and we're ready and we're united.
0: It's a really key point that you're making, Marcelina, that Sean Fain won in the first direct election of the UAW's leadership in the organizations in the union's 88 year history. I want to go to the Ford CEO, Jim Farley, who was speaking on CNBC earlier this week, claiming the United Auto Workers Union proposal could bankrupt the company.
6: If we signed up for the UAW's request, instead of making money and distributing $75,000 in profit sharing in the last 10 years, we would have lost $15 billion and gone bankrupt by now. Uh, the average pay would be nearly $300,000 fully fringed for a four-day work week. There is no per way. For employee, per UAW. Per employee. employee, yeah. This is our fully tenured School teacher in the U.S. makes sixty-six thousand dollars. Someone from the military or fireman makes mid-fifty thousand. This is four or five times, six times what they make. There's no way we can be sustainable as a company. That's why we put our proposal in two weeks ago to say, "Look, you want you want us to choose bankruptcy over supporting our workers? Here's our proposal. Let's work through this." We've heard nothing.
0: That's the CEO of GM, uh, Jim Farley. Uh, last night, Sean Fain was asked about his comments, and he said that the, um, uh, that the labor, um, pay was something like 5% of what the companies pay out. Uh, Alex Press, your staff writer for Jacobin, you wrote this new piece, The UAW Strike, Matters for the Entire, um, u.s workforce if you can talk about what farley is contending
7: yeah so i mean sean fain said last night in response to those comments every word out of their mouths is a lie and i think in this case it's absolutely true jim farley was paid tens of millions of dollars last year there's no sense of bankruptcy on the table um, for these companies. You know, I think it's important to think about when we talk about strikes that are about ending tears, especially, which is what's at play here with the auto workers, you know, a year. This is a calculation for the top rate with all benefits translated into monetary value. Um, There are workers on the assembly lines right now who are making $22 an hour with very few benefits. These are workers who can spend up to eight years as temporary employees not given access to full-time benefits and pay because of these tiers. They might work 60, 70 hour weeks alongside people paid much better. Um, This destroys a union, right? It rots it from the inside. Workers distrust each other. It's very hard um, to keep oneself together um, in such a situation. So Jim Farley, a man who has paid tens of millions of dollars, is contesting that he can afford to give workers a few extra dollars an hour. Um, and so I think there are many specificities when you go into the list of demands here that it's it, you don't have to be um, all in and a, a member of the UAW's reform leadership um, to uh, to sense that you know this is a lie. Even Bloomberg itself talked about how real wages have been down 30% for UAW members um, over the past 10 years. Um, And again, Bloomberg uh, said that the companies can afford this.
0: And just to say, uh, Jim Farley is uh, the Ford CEO. That's where Marcelina works. Made something like $21 million in total compensation last year, according to the Detroit um, News, Uh, while Stellantis CEO Carlos Tavares made $24.8 million. Um, Can you talk about why 2023— this historic strike, relates so directly to the 2009 financial crisis and what UAW agreed to give back because the company said they would go bankrupt.
7: Sure. So there were a number of concessions that the workers agreed to, that the UAW agreed to, you know, quote-unquote, to save these companies, right? They were failing. They were facing bankruptcy. Um, Some of the things the workers gave up included— um, cost-of-living allowances, COLA, as we call it. Um, so, you know, as inflation um, has been high lately, these workers are losing more and more money every every year in real wages. They introduce tiers, as I mentioned. You know, workers who are working alongside the, the older workers, the more senior workers, and being paid less, they lack pensions, retirees are suffering. Um, these are all things that were supposed to be temporary, right? The company said, as soon as we're profitable, we'll give this back, right? It was this sense of partnership. Um, That partnership was a poison pill for workers. And the UAW new leadership knows that. Um, And they're saying, hey, you're very profitable. You know, it is very clear that these companies are making historic profits. You know, it's up almost 100 percent as far as their North American profits over the past decade versus the decade prior. And the leadership and the rank and file are saying, okay, you lied. Um, You didn't give it back. So now we're taking it back.
0: Senator Bernie Sanders has called on the U.S. public to support a strike by UAW members.
1: If the big three automakers, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, do not provide reasonable contracts to address long standing inequities in the industry, there will be a strike. And all of us should support the strikers. The UAW members will be fighting not only for themselves but against a corporate culture of arrogance, cruelty and selfishness, which is causing massive and unnecessary pain for the majority of working families throughout our country. Their fight against corporate greed is our fight. Their victory will resonate all across the economy, impact millions of workers from coast to coast and help create a more just and equitable economy.
0: So that's Bernie Sanders. Alex Press, so you've got the three targeted plants. Um, in Wayne, Michigan, Ford, 3,300 workers. In Toledo, Ohio, 5,800 workers at Stellantis, makers of Chrysler. And in Wentzville, uh, 3,600 workers striking against GM. Explain this overall strategy and then how it could expand to over 150,000 workers. Sure. So as, as we've heard,
7: it's called the stand-up strike. That's what the UAW is calling it. Um, it is never tried before, right? You know, it's, it's a callback to the union's origins, which were in the Flint sit-down strikes, right? There are these incredible photos, you know, that you can find in archives and, and the history books of workers sitting down in the plants. They're reading newspapers. They're drinking coffee. They wouldn't leave, right? This was a targeted strike on particular plants that the entire supply chain, the entire supply line for auto, relied upon. And it was an enormous success. It built the UAW. It inspired copycats in other unions. And it largely reignited um, and and built the 20th century U.S. labor movement. So Sean Fain has said, this is our generation's answer to the sit-down strike. Now, right now, as we've said, there's just under 13,000 workers on strike. This is an escalation tactic, right? Sean Fain has said that not only once a week, but several times a week, he could call out new plants. Every time one of these companies gives an insulting proposal at the bargaining table, Sean Fain and the leadership can stand up and say, all right, new new plants are out. You know, it's this increase of leverage, right? You know, there are risks, of course. I mean, 150,000-person strike all at once certainly would be powerful. It would be important for the workers because it would be such a mass of them. There'd be they'd be have their communities with them. You know, it'd be so visible. But at the same time, it's very expensive. So these workers right now are still earning paychecks. And the workers who are on strike, they're getting money out of the strike fund, five hundred dollars a week. But this helps sustain the strike, right? And so I think you know, so far we've seen. I was a little bit of a skeptic about this, and we've already seen that it's paying some dividends here. You know, I, there have been a lot lot of reports from UAW members in certain plants that their plant management has been given fake lists of what plants are gonna be targeted, that it's messing up the supply chain, that there's sort of confusion and panic among the companies. And so this is really I mean, to use a war metaphor, it's guerrilla warfare.
0: Marcelina um you come from a blue collar family fourth generation union worker for you the significance of this moment not only uh, for the auto workers but can you talk about you see yourself and the auto workers setting a model for uh, pe- working people across the country
4: yes so i come from uh, the southeast side of chicago which you know was once the you know biggest steel producer in the nation and I've seen, you know, my, my family, my father and grandfather worked in the mills and I've seen those, those plants close down and I've seen what it can do to a community, you know, and, and I used to work at the Belvedere assembly plant. And now that plant has been idled and we don't know what's going to happen there. And that's a much smaller city than Chicago, obviously, but it's, it's going to be devastating to that community. So this is an important moment in, in history for us to win back a lot of the, um, things we've lost in these past few years you know it's huge for the labor movement and it's it's uniting workers all across the world you know we've had a solidarity from brazilian auto workers mexican auto workers and just workers of of all kinds so it's just it's going to be make a huge impact on on working families
0: Alex Press, before we go, put this in the context of union activism around the country and around the world this year, almost unprecedented.
7: Yeah, I mean, in the United States, not unprecedented, but certainly unlike anything we've seen in several decades, certainly in my lifetime. You know, we have still the massive double strike in Hollywood. You know, that is hundreds of thousands of workers, 160,000 just in SAG-AFTRA, another 12,000 of the Hollywood writers. We've seen other strikes, too, across the country, and we've seen near strikes. You know, the Teamsters at UPS came very close to striking and in doing so won an unprecedentedly strong contract. Right. Um, And, you know, I think I always tell people to think on a bigger timeline than, say, an electoral cycle when we talk about this. This is the culmination of years of this rising working class, progressive socialist movement that, you know, you can draw through line through Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, the Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns and now a rising fighting working class organized labor movement that is not just clawing back concessions, but going on the offensive. And you really when you get deep down into these movements, you see a lot of them are the same people throughout these years. Um, and so this really, you know, a big part of it is also the pandemic, clarified the lines of class, and also heightened the risks for workers like auto workers, who had to risk, as Sean Fain said, the the possibility that they would catch a disease at work and die or spread it to their family. All while their employers, the CEOs and even the plant managers got to work from home. There was very little risk at all. So this is a, a sort of, I think, expression of pent up frustration and reform efforts and organizing. And, you know, I think to just put in, put it to underline it here, I would just say that they have a lot of ground to make up the auto workers and they're dead set on trying to do it.
0: And finally, the video game programmers, the significance of them if they go out on strike, who they are?
7: Yeah. I mean, this is, again, that's a reflection of, you know, the white collar workers who have been organizing new unions in mass, you know, in a really mar- remarkable way. We might think that video game programmers have very little in common with, say, auto workers. But these are both sets of workers who, if you if you read about what the video game developers are going through, massive overwork, incredible stress, incredible pressure, and huge profits for their employers while they don't see any of the, their fair share. Um, so I, there's many new union campaigns to look out for. And as as um, we've heard already on this program, you know, when the United Auto Workers strike and if they win, which I believe that they will, that has effects for everybody else. The UAW is the biggest industrial union in the United States. They historically have played a precedent setting pace setting role um, for the entire working class. And so that's, you know, it's why we all have to be out there on the picket lines and otherwise supporting them. Um, It'll help us, too.
0: Alex Press, Labor reporter at Jacobin Magazine, will link to your latest article, The UAW Strike Matters, for the entire U.S. working class. And Marcelina Pedraza, electrician at Ford Assembly Plant in Chicago, member of UAW Local 551. Coming up thousands prepare for a major march in New York Sunday to end fossil fuels. We'll speak to a climate scientist just arrested in West Virginia for chaining herself to a drill uh, to protest the construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. And we'll speak to NYU students who've just forced New York University to divest from fossil fuel. This is Democracy Now! Back in a minute. i This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Ahead of a major march Sunday in New York City to escalate the fight to end fossil fuels, hundreds of climate activists blocked the entrances to Citibank's headquarters in Manhattan Thursday as part of a push to end financing for the fossil fuel industry. At least 25 people were arrested, including Alec Connan, co-director of Stop the Money Pipeline. He spoke to Democracy Now! after his release.
5: Citibank is the world's second largest funder of fossil fuels. Since the Paris Agreement was signed seven years ago, which was supposed to be a pivotal turning point in the climate story, Citibank has loaned more than $332 billion to the coal, oil, and gas companies that are fueling the climate crisis and fighting climate action at every turn. And we've been engaging with Citi for years, talking to their senior leadership, Um, encouraging them to listen to us and to start passing policies to stop financing fossil fuel expansion, but they have not listened. And so uh, today um, we descended on their headquarters and we blocked 12 entrances to their headquarters and prevented many, many hundreds of their workers from being able to enter the building um, for an hour or two hours.
0: Also this week, some 400 scientists endorse the demands of Sunday's March to End Fossil Fuels, part of the global fight to end fossil fuels, which will see actions take place around the world. In an open letter to President Biden, they noted he had vowed to listen to the science in tackling the climate crisis. But, quote, it's clear the crisis is spiraling out of control and the policies of your administration, they said, with regard to fossil fuels, fail to align with what the science tells us must happen to avert calamity, unquote. For more, we're joined by one of the signatories to this letter, Rose Abramoff. She's an Earth scientist who was just arrested for chaining herself to a drill in order to shut down construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia, which will carry two billion cubic feet of frack gas across Appalachia. This comes after she was fired in January from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory after urging other scientists to take action on climate change. Welcome back to Democracy Now, Dr. Rose Abramoff. It's great to have you with us. If you can talk about 400 scientists have endorsed this march on Sunday, and this is kicking off a week of climate action, um, what your demands are and the significance of you all being scientists. Many other groups have also endorsed this march.
2: Thank you for having me on, Amy. Um, Yeah, so this letter that some 400 scientists have signed is actually very simple. It's one of our shorter letters. Um, It simply asks the Biden administration to meet the demands of the March to End Fossil Fuels, which are essentially to stop federal approval for new fossil fuel projects and repeal permits for um, major projects like the Willow Project and the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, um, to phase out fossil drilling on our public lands and waters, to declare a climate emergency, Um, and to design an energy transition that protects workers' rights, um, which might relate to your earlier segment. And um, the reason why, you know, we could get into the science of it, we don't actually spend a lot of time in this letter talking about how the continued use of fossil fuels puts us at greater risk of devastating heat and flooding, crop failure, climate migration. Um, You know, the message is very simple. We feel like the science has come to such a complete consensus. And we just want fossil fuels, fossil fuels to stop.
0: So you were arrested, Rose Abramoff, just a week ago when you joined, uh, what, four other activists to block construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia. This is one of the favorite projects of Joe Manchin, the most, um, receives most oil and gas funding of any senator uh, in the U.S. Congress. Can you talk about your action?
2: Sure. Yeah, I was locked to um, the drill, poised to go under the Greenbrier River, which is the longest undammed river in the eastern United States. A lot of this pipeline overlies this karst geology, which is a very kind of vulnerable um, and difficult substrate to drill through um, and, and you know, poses a lot of vulnerability for the local environment. And then, of course, we have the basic climate impact of the 90 or so million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per year, which we can't afford if we want to meet our climate goals or come anywhere close to meeting our climate goals. Um, and so I was locked on. There were actually five um, elder women who were part of the rocking chair rebellion who were um, locked on or blocking um, with me. And um, you know, we all felt that this pipeline is emblematic of the larger struggle to transition away from fossil fuels um, that were failing in that struggle right now. Um, and you know, Senator Manchin, as you said, the champion of the MVP has received more money from methane gas pipelines than any other lawmaker. Um, And so, you know, there's really it's really egregious that this is still happening Um, from a scientific perspective. It's a no brainer that we shouldn't be expanding fossil fuels full stop, Um, you know, Added to the carbon risk is really the cost um, to ratepayers and taxpayers because this needs to become a stranded asset if we're ever going to meet our climate goals. So, you know, this pipeline, which is being built now, really can't and shouldn't be put into service.
0: I mean, so West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin recently went to the construction site to speak about how the project is on track, will provide jobs. Uh, the company says it wants to finish construction to restore the environment. Your response to these kinds of statements?
2: Right. Uh, Well, I don't think that it's at all accurate to say that building this pipeline will restore the environment. I think it'll do exactly the opposite. Um, And what's left of this pipeline now is still hundreds of water crossings, which are in the sort of riskiest types of um, construction for the local environment. And then, of course, there's the emissions burden of this pipeline, which I think is fairly obviously a negative impact on the environment. Um, You know, locals don't want this pipeline. The resistance to this pipeline is primarily local. And, you know, it's also been primarily very effective. I, I sort of find it heartening that this pipeline is six years behind schedule and billions of dollars over budget, in part because of these, you know, small, locally organized actions, such as the one that we um, participated in.
0: I wanted to ask you about one of our news headlines today. We talked about the internal documents from Exxon revealing that executives, including um, Trump's former secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, who was the former CEO uh, um, of Exxon— uh, secretly worked to sow doubt about the severity of climate change. Even as Exxon publicly acknowledged the link between fossil fuels and the climate crisis, he would go on to become secretary of state. The Wall Street Journal reports between 2006 and 16, Exxon executives and in their internal communications attempted to push back against the notion that humans needed to curtail oil and gas use to help the planet. Um, if you can respond to this—
2: Sure. First of all, I find it pretty astounding that this article came out in The Wall Street Journal. Um, I'm actually quite heartened that the notoriously business-focused readership of The Wall Street Journal is interested in Exxon's basically decades-long conspiracy to cover up the climate crisis. It makes me feel like we're making some progress and moving towards this shared real- sense of reality, at least of what is what what Exxon's intentions are. Um, and yeah, secondly, I don't at all find it shocking that Exxon's continuing to downplay climate change as late as this last decade. Um, in fact, I would argue that if you did another expose in 10 or so years of communications that are happening right now at these companies, you would find a continued, you know, utter lack of intention to transition their energy holdings. Um, and so, and, you know, this to me is just like one more line of evidence. There was a study earlier this year in the journal Science um, that showed that Exxon's internal climate models in the 70s were as accurate as anyone else's in the scientific community at that time. And yet, you know, they continued to fund misinformation think tanks and, and as this article says, never publicly acknowledged climate change until the mid-2000s. So. Well, I feel like the lesson that we should take from all this is that fossil fuel companies like Exxon have no intention of transitioning their energy holdings on their own, that we have to force them to do it.
0: Finally, you're going to be joining this march on Sunday. uh, But, Rose Abramoff, was it worth all that you've done um, uh, being fired in January from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory after urging other um, after urging Other scientists uh, to speak out around climate change and to take action on it. Are you sorry for what you did?
2: Um, I'm not. I, I feel like I've tried everything that I could do in order to get this message across and to, you know, get like get the message out to people that climate activists aren't crazy hippies that you know and scientists aren't exaggerating that this is a serious issue that we need to address now i feel like i did everything that i could within the context of behaving well as a scientist you know educational programs policy reports city council petitions and marches i wouldn't feel the need to risk my job with activism, you know, to risk felony level charges by locking myself to a pipeline drill if I felt like the voice of the scientific community was being properly heard. So, so I stand by my actions.
0: Dr. Rose Abramoff, I want to thank you so much for being with us, Earth Scientist. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to a major victory for climate activists here in New York. When NYU, New York University, announced its plans to divest from fossil fuels after facing over a decade of pressure from student advocates, the chair of the NYU Board of Trustees announced a decision in an August letter addressed to Sunrise NYU— and acknowledge them for their work over the years. For more, we're joined by two of the people who were key to this campaign. Alicia Colomer is a co-founder of Sunrise NYU, managing director of Fossil Free Research. And Dylan Wabi is also a co-founder and hub director of Sunrise NYU. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Alicia, let's begin with you. The significance of—well, what exactly did NYU agree to do? And talk about your organizing leading to this.
3: Yes. Thank you for having me. So the fossil fuel industry continues to deny and delay climate action, as we just heard. And it's very important for universities to put their money where their mouth is and actually invest in a just green energy future that they're preparing their students to enter, not continue investing in the industry that is destroying our future. So what NYU has committed to do is to stop giving more money to the industry that is destroying our future. And that is why it is such a crucial decision. But this decision comes after 10 years of student activism and organizing at NYU, and it shouldn't have taken a decade for them to be able to finally make this announcement.
0: And the announcement was what? And were you surprised? I mean, this is one of the wealthiest universities in the United States, certainly one of the most expensive for tuition. Were you surprised, Alicia, that they congratulated the chair of the board, congratulated NYU Sunrise? You're the co-founder of that organization.
3: Yes, I was definitely surprised because in most university divestment announcements, student activists aren't recognized in the decision. So it was very gratifying to read that letter from Bill Berkeley himself, the chair of our board, congratulating the successes of Sunrise NYU in getting here. And I think that recognition is very well deserved because we have spent so many years building this great organization and running this amazing campaign and we genuinely could not never have gotten this win without the work of so many student organizers who did everything from organizing protests and rallies to collecting over 2,000 signatures on our petition, to working with our student government assembly and the Office of Sustainability. And it just was so many years of work leading up to this decision. And it was very gratifying that the chair of our board was able to recognize that.
0: And Dylan Wabi, your response as well, as another of the co-founders of Sunrise
6: NYU. Sunrise NYU is nothing but our people. To be honest, we don't even have a consistent place to meet within NYU. We meet in an empty auditorium, and every now and then it's full with some sort of presentation, and we have to improvise. But we have an incredible leadership, and incredible membership. And on top of that, we work with other progressive student organizations, and we work with the unions on campus, the contract faculty union, the graduate student union, adjunct union, and others. And through this broad coalition is ultimately what forced the Board of Trustees to sit down with us and led to this decision.
0: And Alicia Colmer, if you can talk about um, the efforts to block fossil fuel corporations from funding university research on the climate crisis. Earlier this year, a report by Data for Progress and Fossil Free Research, your group, looked into the influence of big oil and other polluters, what influence they have on higher education.
3: Definitely. So as you were just talking about with Rose, uh, fossil fuel companies have continued to sow misinformation about climate change in order to deny climate action. And one of the ways they do this is by funding research at universities that leads for false climate solutions and helps them continue business as usual. And for them, business as usual is the continued destruction of our planet, right? Um, So policymakers and legislators, they read these reports that come from prestigious universities, and they are much more likely to believe a quote-unquote climate research document if it, at the top of the document, it says... MIT or Harvard, rather than it had a direct Exxon branding, though it might as well have a direct Exxon branding because all of that research is directly funded by these big oil companies. And so what we're trying to do is stop that pipeline, stop the fossil fuel money from coming and polluting our universities in the first place so that universities can become real climate leaders and so that universities can create real innovation, real climate solutions and lead us to a just energy transition. And that's why we're demanding that universities stop taking fossil fuel money for climate research. Uh,
0: Finally, Dylan Wabi, what else do you think needs to be said as we move into what's happening on Sunday, this major march? And what inspired you to get involved with the whole issue of climate change?
6: I think I would encourage every single student to get organized and join the movement. There's over 100 Sunrise Chapters across the country, and there's other incredible groups, Extinction Rebellion, uh, YDSA and DSA Chapters. And it's really through community organizing that we will have a voice Uh, YDSA and DSA chapters. And it's really through community organizing that we will have a voice uh, YDSA and DSA chapters. And it's really through community organizing that we will have a voice uh, YDSA and DSA chapters.
0: We're going to have to leave it there. It seems that Dylan's voice has gone into a loop. Uh, Dylan Wabi and Alicia Colomer are co-founders of Sunrise NYU. Um, Coming up, we go to Washington where Hunter Biden has been indicted on gun gun Charges. He is it is the first time in history that the child of a sitting president has been indicted. Stay with us.
5: No more. Watch his eyes, twitch fingers, start to tremor.
7: Wonder if he's
6: going to leave, but I never ask. Let the kid take a hit if he has to.
0: spirit of the beehive. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Well, federal prosecutors have indicted President Biden's son Hunter on felony charges, illegally possessing a handgun, making false statements in order to obtain a revolver in 2018. The charges carry a maximum sentence of 25 years in prison and fines of up to $750,000. The special counsel now, David Weiss, brought the charges after a Trump-appointed federal judge in July rejected a deal that would have seen Hunter Biden plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax counts in order to escape more serious charges. It's the first time in U.S. history the Justice Department is criminally charged the child of a sitting president. This comes as Republican lawmakers have opened an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. We're joined now by Ryan Grimm. He's the D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept. His Substack stack newsletters titled Bad News, upcoming book, The Squad, AOC, and the Hope of a Political Revolution. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Uh, first, talk about this. Well, it is a historic indictment. The first time um, the child of a president, he's hardly a child, but has been indicted.
8: It, It is a historic indictment, but it's also kind of a letdown in a sense for, you know, for people who really want to see Hunter, you know, thrown up against the wall, because it's it's kind of a ticky tack charge. And it's kind of a charge that the right is going to want to see, you know, the Second Amendment absolutists are going to want to see thrown out. And Hunter's lawyers actually made this argument that, look, you can go ahead and, and make this charge and you can probably get in a conviction in front of a jury because the facts are, every, you know, look, everybody's innocent until proven guilty. But it looks like he did fill out the form saying he wasn't you know, using drugs at the time that he was buying this weapon. And that was not true. He was, uh, you know, according to his own memoir or whatever, unless he wants to try to argue that in that you know, discreet moment. He wasn't using drugs. And so the Second Amendment absolutists are going to say, look, there is no requirement in the Constitution that says you have to be sober uh, or that you can put any conditions or restrictions whatsoever on gun ownership. Now, I would argue that that kind of cuts against the whole idea of a well-regulated militia. But we're, you know, we're 200 years past that at this point. So you could easily see an appeals court toss out this conviction, which would then lead to, you know, paradoxically or ironically, an expansion of gun rights uh, at the hands of Hunter Biden, ironically.
0: I mean, it's fascinating. You didn't see Republicans while they're disappointed that this didn't go deeper. And it's very interesting. The head of the Oversight Committee, Comer, who didn't wasn't able to come up with anything on President Biden yet. McCarthy has just announced the House Speaker that they are starting this impeachment inquiry against him, said this is probably the one charge that President Biden has nothing to do with.
8: It is that's true. Uh, there, there's no reason to think uh, that the big guy, as as the right uh, calls him, based on that that email, that famous famous or infamous email, would have had anything to do with this whatsoever. It's the it's the most cordoned off uh, crime that he would have committed. Everything else, you know, from the Republican perspective, has at least some kind of tangential connection, potentially to the President Biden, whether it's the tax charges and the, or the or the foreign influence peddling. This is just a, a messed up guy, you know, lying on a on a on paperwork to buy a gun
0: that he wasn't taking drugs when, right. in fact, he said in his book that he was taking drugs. Um, so this right. actually is evidence from his own book. But as Abby Lowell points out, and as the Republicans would underscore in any other case, um, this is a violation, they are saying, of the First Amendment of the Second Amendment. So talk about the context in which this is happening in the opening of this impeachment inquiry uh, into President Biden, um, do you feel that it has something to do with, well, as President Trump runs again for president, then he can say, you know, when people say the twice indicted President Trump, (laughs) uh, you know, we've all been indicted. Uh, We've all been, rather, we've all been impeached.
8: And maybe this will become the norm that if the House of Representatives is controlled by the opposite party, there will be pressure from that party's base to indict the president if the president i mean not to indict uh you know to impeach the president uh, if the president is from the opposite party so you could just which which then kind of uh, strips it of a lot of its power but yeah so what what basically happened is that it seems like kevin mccarthy uh got word uh that matt gates was going to give an extended speech his own indictment so to speak of kevin mccarthy When they when the House came back this week uh, from its from its August recess and say that he was going to, if McCarthy didn't live up to the bargain that was struck back in January, make a motion to vacate the chair, basically kick McCarthy out of his speakership. And McCarthy kind of uh, scrambled quickly to make this announcement that he was going to open an impeachment inquiry, but not send that to the House floor for a vote, which means that, you know, whatever moderate Republicans are left don't have to kind of don't have to walk the plank on an unpopular vote back in their kind of Biden supporting districts. Steve Bannon on his podcast said that it it looked like McCarthy had bayonets in his back. And in fact, he did. And what he means is that people like Gates and Bannon kind of forced McCarthy into this position. And so the White House is saying, if you don't put this on the floor for a vote, what we can do is refer to the legal counsel memo written by President Trump's attorneys that say that if you don't, if the House doesn't vote on an impeachment inquiry, it's not an impeachment inquiry. Kevin McCarthy getting up in front of a bank of microphones and declaring it does not make it so. And so you have therefore not actually opened up the powers of impeachment yet. If you want to do it, you have to put people on record saying that they want to move forward on this.
0: And is the reason he's hesitating to do it is he's afraid that even among the Republicans, he's not going to have the votes he needs.
8: Because he only has a cushion of, of around four votes. And so you one of them is are... George
0: Santos, if that's his name. <laughs> right.
8: That's right. Although Santos will do whatever uh, McCarthy asks him to do. Mm-hmm. Iron- ironically, it, usually somebody from that district would be the kind that would be, you know, le- less willing to uh, to make a move against Biden if Biden uh, you know, was popular in that district. But because Santos has the problems that he has, he's he's just doing whatever McCarthy says he does, because his job depends and on what McCarthy. happened
0: yesterday, the meeting in the Republican caucus with the F-bombs flying and uh, um, the House Speaker McCarthy saying you can make an effing move for a motion um, as they want to unseat him, this leading to possibly a government shutdown by the end of the month.
8: It's an incredible time for this to be happening, because, like you said, if they don't if they don't produce a continuing resolution or, a, or some type of spending bill by September 30th, the House shuts down. The House have been saying they don't want to do a continuing resolution. They want to do their own appropriations bills the way that the House is designed to work. going you know, to pass all 12. They'll go through the House, go through the Senate, signed by Biden, normal functional government. In the face of that, they have two weeks to pull all that off. Yet they're spending all of their time, you know, shouting at each other and saying they're going to impeach Biden and also throw McCarthy out of the speaker's chair. So they're not going to pass their appropriations bills. They're also saying if you try to pass a CR, a continuing resolution that just keeps the government open, we're going to throw McCarthy out of the speakership. So the only two paths to keep the government open are those two paths, and the, and their dysfunction is ruling out uh, the former and their, the Freedom Caucus is ruling out the latter. So it, it does seem like they are headed for a shutdown of their own making. Like that, They won't even be able to spin it in any serious way that, that it was Democrats' fault.
0: Ryan Grimu, and want to thank you for being with us, D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept. That does it for our show. Happy birthday to Sam Alcock. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.